1: My name is uh, Phil Donarcy, and we're doing a podcast for the New Books Network today with Aziz Pop who is a professor of law at the University of Chicago. Aziz, what else can you tell me about yourself and, for instance, how you got to the University of Chicago?
0: Sure. I graduated from the University um, at Columbia University Law School in 2001. I did two federal clerkships. Uh, I worked for a year for an organization called the International Crisis Group, which does uh, geopolitical analysis of conflict, In and I, I worked for them in Afghanistan. Uh, and then I, w- I spent about five years working for the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU, doing litigation on uh, voting rights and on civil liberties in the national security space, uh, before being hired... Uh, by the University of Chicago Law School, uh, where I've been for 13 years.
1: How many years? I missed. <laughs> I, I,
0: I'm, um, I'm sorry, and I, I'll explain to your listeners that I have a slight <laughs> sore throat, um, <clears> throat> the, the products of having two young boys to shout at. Um, I've been here for 13 years. Oh, that's great.
1: Um, your book is called The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies. Now, remedies is a word that uh, often shows up in uh, discussions about law, and it's always paired with rights. Rights and remedies is one of the uh, few um, uh, phrases that actually has a ring to it in the law. Uh,
0: Tell us what the difference
1: is between rights and remedies. Uh,
0: So, the Constitution contains a broad array of individual entitlements Many people are familiar with the right to free speech. Many people are familiar with uh, the right against unreasonable uh, searches and seizures under the Fourth Amendment. Uh, And we can go on, there's rights to due process, equal protection, the Second Amendment uh, rights with respect to firearms. Um, The Constitution, although it contains a broad range of rights does not say all that much about how those rights will be enforced. Uh, In fact, there are only two provisions in the Constitution that even gesture at the way in which a right will be realized. What this means is that the Constitution commits or restrains government through uh, the articulation, through the speaking of uh, 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 an array of important individual interests, but does not say how those interests will be translated into uh, a practical reality in most cases. So there is a gap between, on the one hand, the constitutional text, which is rich in rights, and the very consequential question of how those rights will be realized in practice. right, let me uh, interrupt you and ask a question. Was that
1: intended by the founders, Mm -hmm. this gap you're talking about?
0: It was intended in the sense that the, the, the founders made certain assumptions about the scope of government, the nature of the risk that a right would be violated and the availability of background uh, mechanisms through which rights violations could be remedied. So the assumptions that I think are most important to your question are are first uh, that the Bill of Rights Initially applied only to the federal government; it didn't apply to the states. And the federal government, for much of the first century of American history, was not that large. There wasn't that much of a federal government. There weren't there weren't many agents of the federal government who could go about violating individual rights. Moreover, the uh, assumption at the time. Uh, of, the, of the founding was that the, there would be um, ordinary civil courts, including state courts, that could provide remedies for uh, a federal action that violated a constitutional right. Indeed, up through the uh, Civil War, uh, if uh, a federal officer imperme- unlawfully detained an individual, um, a state court would uh, be available to provide a remedy for that detention. We've completely lost that idea of uh, the role, the potential role of state courts with respect to the defense of federal rights, in part because the Civil War and the aftermath of the Civil War reoriented our understanding, reoriented the constitutional understanding of the relationship between the states and the federal government. Did the states grudgingly enforce these rights
1: in, say, the 19th century? Because there was tension between federal rights, I mean, the federal government and state governments as to who really had the upper hand in deciding what was going to happen.
0: So the, the... the record of states with respect to the enforcement of constitutional rights is um, complex and varied. On the one hand, states did protest actively uh, through the political process, actions that they saw as being uh, unlawful by the federal government. So uh, this is There was a pattern of political protestation with respect to the Alien and Sedition Acts that were uh, uh, passed under the Adams administration. Um, there was resistance by Southern states famously to what was called the Tariff of Abominations. So there's lots of political protest happening uh, on the part of the states. On the other hand, there aren't that many instances in which there's a... Uh, a federal a- action that is coercive, that targets an individual, and where the individual turns to a state court for protection, those cases tend to arise uh, uh, in, in moments of open conflict. So, for example, during the War of 1812, when state courts in, in for example, New York, did provide remedies for what they viewed as unlawful federal detention of people who had been impressed into the national army
1: all right so there's one tension between the states and the federal government but within the uh, government itself the federal government there's a uh, tension between congress and the courts you spend the first few chapters of your book talking about that can you sketch that out for us
0: sure the federal government that's created uh, through the Constitution of uh, 1787 has three branches. We talk today about those three branches as being um, uh, independent of each other and co-equal. Um, the, the original design of the federal judiciary federal courts, however, uh, was uh, intended to create a body of uh, tribunals, a body of judges who would be independent of the political process. Um, And the framers made certain design decisions about how the courts would operate um, and made certain assumptions about their operation that have informed the nature of judicial independence. The framers decided to protect the independence of the courts not by uh, protecting the institution of the courts, but by focusing upon individual judges. So the federal courts don't actually have any guaranteed power over particular kinds of cases, uh, except for a very small class uh, of instances. There's no, the, the, the Congress, that is, has broad authority to decide what kinds of cases the federal courts can hear. And indeed, Congress has exercised that authority over time. Rather than protecting the institution of the federal courts, The drafters of the Constitution decided to protect independence at the level of the judge. Now, there's two ways in which you can do that. One way is you can have an appointment procedure that shelters the judge from political influence, that ensures an apolitical appointment mechanism. This is used in many countries around the world today. The other way in which you can uh, protect judicial independence at the level of the judge is by giving them after the fact protections, giving them protections against being fired or punished. The framers decided on the second and not the first form of protection for judges. Judges sit uh, uh, so long as they uh, show what's called good behavior uh, and they the conventional understanding is that they cannot be removed except through impeachment. However, judges are appointed in a process that runs through the president and the senate, two bodies that are elected and that are overtly political. The framers, however, believed that the political nature of the appointment process would not be uh, a problem, would not Uh, create a partisan judiciary. Why? Because they made two assumptions about the world. And these assumptions are stated explicitly in uh, the Federalist Papers written by Hamilton. The first assumption is that the Senate would be an apolitical body. It would be a body that stood above partisanship. The second assumption would was that there were so few qualified lawyers that neither the president nor the Senate would have wiggle room to pick lawyers who shared their partisan preferences. There'd be so few people. Only the 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 the, the president's hands would be tied when selecting judges because there would only be uh, a limit, a very limited number of qualified candidates.
1: Now, let me ask you, were those assumptions ever actually true? <clears throat> I imagine on the supply of, of qualified judges, what is to say, uh, good lawyers, that was probably true. But what about the other assumption that you described?
0: That right. The, 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 the second assumption was, was pr- likely true at least through the... Uh, the 1790s, maybe the early 1800s, because there were there were actually very there there were not law schools in the United States. The first law schools are set up uh, in Harvard, and then there's a, um, another uh, dedicated law school that's set up, I think, in in New England mm-hmm. in the Liffield? 1790s. Liffield? Uh, that might be right. Um, the 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 assumption about the Senate though is is interesting. the The theory of the constitution was that the uh, national government, and in particular, the Senate and the presidency, would stand above politics, would not be characterized by what James Madison famously called factions. This quickly proved um, a flawed assumption. Uh, Even in the first decade of of the Republic, um, both in the House and the Senate, you saw very, very clear patterns of partisan voting. So from the very beginning of the Republic, it was clear that the Senate was not going to be a body that stood above factions. And certainly the House was not a body that stood above factions as you saw in the contested election of 1800. So, um, the assumption about how the, the national government would work was tested and failed within the first decade. The, the, the consequence of these two assumptions failing is that the appointment process for federal judges is open to partisan influences. And um, particularly at moments in time when um, partisanship is uh, strong at the national level, and we've gone, as a, as a nation, through moments of high levels of polarization, low levels of polarization, and we're back in a moment of high levels of polarization. When, when partisan polarization is, is, at the national level, is high, we should expect to see judicial appointments that reflect partisan interests. And uh, judges whose beliefs and values, uh, beliefs and values that are inevitably uh, playing a role when they uh, uh, come onto the bench, um, are influencing the uh, manner in which they make uh, decisions, particularly where those decisions are not constrained by some clear piece of constitutional text. One consequence of this openness of the federal judiciary to partisan influences is the <clears throat> is the is the changing pattern of individual remedies for constitutional wrongs over time that is uh, judges who've had uh, historically wide discretion over what remedies there will be for constitutional uh, violations have, um, change the uh, the volume or the availability of remedies uh, in light of the uh, uh, interests that they have brought to bear by dint of the partisan process through which the federal bench is constituted.
1: All right, let me uh, interrupt and say, or ask two questions. One is, and this is probably an unfair question, can you give us an idea of the quality of the judges in the 19th century these appointments <laughs> and of all these <clears throat> the enforcement uh, of these remedies uh, at least the recognition of the remedies was that a whimsical thing for these judges or did they were they disciplined did they recognize the need for the uh, uh, remedies
0: to be enforced so let me let me take up both of those in turn so during the Uh, first half of the 1800s, federal judicial appointees come directly from the political classes. People like John Marshall, who is uh, famous as one of the early chief justices of the Supreme Court, are overtly partisan figures. Marshall was the secretary of state for John Adams before he becomes chief justice. Indeed, there's a period of time uh, on which uh, during which the um he's serving both as secretary of state and as chief justice which is uh certainly questionable as an ethical matter um through the 1840s and 1850s um the the bench including the supreme court is comprised of judges who are members of the partisan political classes engaged in um The gate or the the dynamics of national political contestation, including over sectional conflict that will become the Civil War. Uh, A famous example of this is the leak. uh, You know, people have been talking about the Dobbs leak, but there there have been earlier leaks. Uh, The leak uh, of the Dred Scott uh, opinion uh, to President Buchanan. uh, President Buchanan is tipped off about by one of the judges uh, of the Supreme Court uh, of how the Dred Scott will ca- will, case will come out, and Buchanan turns around and tries to lobby one of the dissenters to change their vote. Uh, this is possible because we're in an age in which judges and justices are highly, highly political uh, creatures, and everyone recognizes them as such. Um, on your second question, so Federal courts are not doing all that much by way of granting individual remedies uh, in the first half of the 1800s. There are cases in which uh, they are essentially hearing uh, what's called a tort action under state law uh, or under the common law against federal officials and granting damages. There are some cases of that kind, but there are not that many in part because there's just not that many federal officials. It's only in the wake of the Civil War when the Reconstruction Amendments impose a new set of constitutional constraints upon the several states. And when you start to have uh, conflict over uh, first um, uh, rate regulation and efforts to constrain cartels by the states and then contestation over labor and, and union organizing, that courts start to become much more aggressive about giving uh, remedies for what they perceive as constitutional violations. Um, and the, the kind of remedies that you see being given in the uh, late 1800s and the early 1900s reflect the nature of, or the, or the partisan interests of the judiciary at that point in time. Let me explain that. After the Civil War, the Republican Party turns toward the project of industrialization, turns toward the project of enabling the commercial republic to grow. And uh, in the 1870s, as they as it looks as if they're about to lose power, they're, they're losing national elections. Um, uh, aggressively expands the uh, the. Uh, the array of lower federal courts and does their best to uh, stack those federal courts with Republican appointees. Those appointees share the nationalistic and commercial values that their party have. And one of the things that we see in consequences in the 1880s and 1890s, federal courts first identify the liberty of contract as a constitutional value. Uh, and second, start to grant much more aggressively uh, injunctions against state governments that are aiming to enforce rate regulation that violates what was then called the uh, liberty of contract. So what you see in the late 1800s and early 1900s is the use or the development of injunction. Uh, first against states that are trying to uh, regulate businesses. Uh, and then second against unions that are uh, uh, trying to organize uh, workplaces um, in ways that are at odds with the constitutional and uh, vision of these judges, Republican judges appointed in the 1870s in particular. This lasts until about the 1930s or 40s. We have a process of political change where the, uh, the underlying liber- idea of liberty of contract is first critiqued, uh, attacked by the FDR administration, and then abandoned. Um, in the 1940s and 50s you have de- much you have democratic judges appointed uh, by the Roosevelt and then the Truman administrations. And those, um, the, the pattern of appointments, particularly under FDR, was focused on on finding judges who would be more sympathetic to individual rights claims on the part of blacks in the American South. Roosevelt was concerned with breaking the power of Dixiecrats within his coalition. He can't do it directly. And so he looks to the courts as a way of loosening the stranglehold that Dixiecrats have on political power in the South. And it's because of that partisan pattern of appointments, and the willingness of those judges to grant individualized remedies first in desegregation cases, but then importantly later also in criminal uh, uh, procedure cases, where they perceive the uh, criminal justice system of the South as being an instrument of Jim Crow. Right. The, it's the it's the it's the partisan agenda of those judges. Democratic judges, that leads to a dramatic expansion in what we we now think of as individualized remedies against state violence, which until the 1950s and early 1960s, simply don't exist at any scale in the federal courts. Oh, yeah, the, one, uh, let me sorry. interrupt and ask a different question. Yeah. How
1: would things have been different if the Bill of sure. Rights, the rights contained in the Bill of Rights, had been applied to all the states, the incorporation doctrine? How would things have been different as the decades played out? I think there was a battle fought by Hugo Black, for instance, about incorporation. He wanted all of them incorporated. People like Felix Frankfurt did not. How would things have been different if the
0: entire Bill of Rights applied to the states? Well, we would have had a fundamentally different country from the get-go. The... The Bill of Rights was understood from its inception to apply only to the federal government. Uh, That's confirmed in an 1883, 1833 case called Barron v. City of Baltimore. And even after the Civil Rights uh, Amendment, Civil Rights, excuse me, the Civil War Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and the 15th, um, the Supreme Court is extremely unwilling to constrain uh, the states using the federal constitution. Indeed, the very first interpretations of the 14th uh, Amendment in particular uh, are are consciously and explicitly narrow in light of the justices concerns with not disturbing state sovereignty and state autonomy. It's only in the 19... um, it's only in the in the uh, 1880s and 1890s where you have the the wave of Republican judges that I describe being appointed, uh, identifying the liberty of contract as a value under the Fourteenth Amendment, and then imposing constraints upon the states pursuant to the liberty of contract. This largely meant striking down laws, not uh or and and granting injunctions against the enforcement of rates for example wasn't it wasn't remedies for individual state violence that that you did not see Um, it's only in the in the wake of the uh of the 1930s and the discrediting of that vision of liberty of contract that you start to see this the debate about incorporation that, uh, Bill, you mentioned, and um, importantly, the development by the court of procedural vehicles through which incorporated rights against state coercion can be enforced by individuals. It's only in the 1950s that you see the court uh, extend the... Uh, uh, the the right to damages against unconstitutional state violence uh, to state actors as opposed to federal actors. It's only in the 1950s that you see uh, the uh, federal remedy for unlawful detention, which is called habeas, being opened up to people who are detained by the states. As- opposed to the federal government. And it's only in the early 1960s that you see an effectual remedy for Fourth Amendment violations, uh, violations of the right against unreasonable searches and seizures, being enacted against the states in the form of the exclusionary rule, the rule that if if a police officer obtains evidence in violation of the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment, it cannot be used in a criminal trial. So incorporation happens in the 1930s but incorporation isn't going to bite on states until the court in the 50s and 60s develops this array of remedies all right
1: so we have this relationship between congress and the courts and you're saying i think that right. 19th century it was a profound uh, the, the congressional influence was profound by uh drafting legislation passing legislation dealing with jurisdiction also the size of the courts, where the courts are. So we get into the 20th century. It sounds like there's an ascension of the uh, individual judges and their personalities and their um, ideas of the way the country should, should move. You talk about, the, um, in the 50s, you talk about this cadre of, of uh, liberal justices who transform individual rights on the criminal side. Um, that would be... Warren Brennan um, Hugo Black uh, Douglas it doesn't matter when it comes to the legitimacy of these granted rights that they were granted by this um, kind of coalition of both parties it was bipartisan some of these justices were appointed by Republican presidents Eisenhower and some by Democratic presidents Truman and Roosevelt does that give those
0: rights any more weight, do you think? Well, can I, can I just step back a second and, and unpack something you said earlier in your that question? Means, yes, yes. So let me, let me draw a distinction between two uh, aspects of the federal courts, one of which has remained constant and one of which has changed over time. What's remained constant is that we have an appointment process that is open to partisan influences. Presidents um, um, make appointments that reflect values and uh, beliefs that are aligned with their party. That was true in the 1870s, it was true in the 1950s, and it's true today. That's one thing that has remained constant over time. One thing that has changed, however, over time is the institutional heft, the institutional weight of the federal courts. So the federal courts go from being a relatively skeletal operation through, uh, to the, uh, through the antebellum period to being bulked up in the 1870s and to accruing their own uh, bureaucracy in the form of the administrative office uh, and their own capacity to lobby in the early 20th century. So the federal courts become more institutionalized in the late 1800s and early 1900s. But that doesn't change the fact that the appointment process is still porous to partisan forces, so that, I, that that's a, a subtle uh, distinction between uh, independence at the level of the individual and independence at the level of the institution. And you've seen a lot more institutional independence uh, uh, over time, but you haven't seen any change to the to the porousness to uh, to partisan uh, uh, forces in the appointment process. Um, the 19, you asked a question about the remedies that were granted in the 1940s and the 1950s. Um, the 1940s and the 1950s are, are a period in which the two major political parties in the United States, the Republicans and the Democrats, are not that far apart. They're not that far apart because um, there are cross cutting cleavages um, uh, that run um, across the partisan dividing line. There are both uh, uh, Southern Democrats and Southern Republicans. The The race line or, or conflict over race, that is, hasn't become aligned with conflict over party identity. One of the consequences of, of that is that in the 1950s, 40s and 50s, you can have both Democrats and Republicans appointing judges who are um, willing to take action uh, against Jim Crow institutions. They're willing to put their weight behind uh, the desegregation project of Brown v Board of Education. They're willing to um, allow federal courts to, uh, to step in to state criminal justice processes where those criminal justice processes look corrupt or tainted by racial influence. Now, one thing that happens over the, the second half of the twentieth century is that this, uh, that the, the 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 existence of cross-cutting cleavages with respect to party identity falls away. Party identity comes to be more and more identified with uh, views about race, views about law and order and views about um, uh, what might loosely be called cultural values. This is a process that happens particularly through the the Nixon administration, and Nixon's efforts to capitalize on Southern discontent at desegregation continues through the uh, Reagan administration and, and has gone on unabated until today. A consequence of that is that is that today, unlike in the 1940s or 50s, maybe even the early 60s, you have two political parties that are um, that don't have much overlap in terms of substantive preferences, in terms of policy preferences, um, and that are uh, that have very very clear identities with respect to questions about race, and with respect to questions about, which are now loosely coded under the, under the term culture wars. A consequence of that change in our uh, degree of, uh, of partisan polarization is a change in the nature of the kinds of judges who are going to be selected, nominated, and confirmed by Republicans as opposed to Democrats. I'm not sure whether one or the other period of time, the 50s or the, let's say, the last decade, has produced more legitimate judges. Right? I think you you need to unpack what the word legitimate means. What I do. What I would stress is that the kind of judges being appointed in the 1950s and the kind of judges being appointed today are very, very different because of the underlying differences in our partisan polarization at the national level.
1: Well, let me jump in and ask this then. The uh, speculation, of course, is that the decision granting the right to abortion is going to be uh, reversed, overruled, I should say. Um, Where is the idea of uh, judicial modesty in this? That is the idea that judges aren't there to determine the way our lives are going to go based on their own personal preference. Um, Because it strikes me that uh, these judges who are on the court now who are going to vote to overrule uh, Roe v. Wade uh, are taking a very different approach to judging than anything we've ever seen before in our history. Is that hyperbole or is there a truth to that?
0: Um, I, I think that there's both truth to it, and I, I, I want to put some caveats to it. Yes, please. I, what I would stress, and I, and I think I, I I've been trying to stress it, um, but I'd stress it again, is that, Um, we have a political appointment process. We have a process where judges are selected by the president and then they're voted on by the Senate. Both the president and the Senate are clearly uh, not just political bodies, but they're highly partisan bodies. They're driven by partisan forces. And because of the failure of those two assumptions uh, that I flagged uh, earlier on in our conversation the assumptions made by Hamilton and other framers that there would be constraints upon the operation of partisan forces when it came to the appointment of judges, once those constraints fall away, we're going to have a judiciary that reflects in important ways um, partisan uh, interests, and they're going to emphasize or they're going to exercise whatever judges are going to exercise whatever discretion they have in ways that influence or that, uh, or that reflect the priorities and the beliefs are, that, that come with their partisan identity. That I don't think has changed through time. I, I think that we have a court that can decide a case like Brown v. Board of Education because it, it's, it's staffed with people who are newly sensitive to the situation of African-Americans in the South. Um, and that, that sensitivity is a partisan matter that and, and you can think that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I, the point that I want to make is just that it, 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 it is a change that happens in the 1950s because of the changing partisan dynamics of appointments. Today we have a tradition Uh-oh, we're tradition of partisan influences, but we're in a moment of not just partisan polarization. But hyperpolarization, much, much bigger degrees of polarization that we've seen at least for the past 70 or 80 years, uh, where the party that has uh, played uh, the dominant role in appointments to the Supreme Court since the 1970s, um, the Supreme Court has not had. Uh, or uh, a majority of Democratic appointed judges since the end of the 1960s. I think it was either 1969 or 1970. The Republican Party has appointed a majority of judges uh, to the Supreme Court since the uh, for the last 50 years. That party has moved dramatically to, um, uh, uh, to the right uh, over the last 10 years. That's a function of uh, the Trump presidency but it precedes the Trump presidency um, and um, it has the, the president uh, and this is not just President Trump but it's also president uh, President Bush uh, one and two have used their appointment power in ways that reflect that movement to the political right so what we have today is as before a um, a court that reflects underlying partisan gaps, but unlike before, we have a court that reflects the partisan um, a, a partisan distribution, which is v- quite far from the median voter's preferences in the United States. Right, the de- the the, the uh, if you look at the uh, ideological scores that are called the Quinn Martin scores, uh, uh, which are calculated for each one of the individual judges uh, on the Supreme Court. The justices today are more to the right than has been true for the last century. And they're far, far, far to the right of the median American voter. And in consequence, what you're going to see it from that out of that pen is a series of decisions that reflect uh interests that that are uh, or understandings of the constitution understandings of federal law that are in many instances dramatically out of step with uh, understandings and beliefs of the uh of much of the american public
1: well what you seem to be suggesting and i might be wrong about this uh, is that we have less reason to complain about the court, less reason to apply criticism, because what you're saying, I think, is, well, all of this is to be expected. This is what the process produces. And we just happen to be in a moment when they are able to get, the Republicans were able to get three or four really conservative, or you can even call them reactionary uh, justices on the bench. Now, I want to go back to another idea of this. It's all related. Um, what yeah. would have happened Back in 19, well, in the Brown versus Board of Education case, 1954, what would have happened if it had been 5-4? Because we know from all the internal documents that there was a tremendous push to make sure it was unanimous. Isn't there a kind of influence that says when you're dealing with something so utterly important as individual rights to someone's body, as well as education, like the abortion case, that it should be unanimous?
0: I I I want to just respond, Bill, to the first thing you said, which was, I'm not I'm not trying to legitimate or to say that any decision uh, taken today uh, is valid or acceptable. Um, no, I'm not acceptable. suggesting that. I'm not suggesting that. Um, um, you know, I, what I would say is is that it, I I think I'd make two. I you know I I reiterate that what I'm trying to do is to get is to give an account of the underlying mechanisms through which something is happening. I think that one thing that's implicit in what I'm saying is that I I don't think that the I I don't think that either the questions of of remedies that my book is focused upon or even the kind of headline questions about constitutional rights that many people um, hear about, particularly in June when the big decisions come along, questions about abortion, questions about the equal protection clause, questions about the Second Amendment, I I, I don't think that it is plausible to say that these are questions that can be answered mechanically by applying some pre-existing rule that is to be found in the text of the Constitution. I think if you look at the history and if you look at the text and the history and the the understandings of the people who enacted key clauses in the Constitution, even at the moment of enactment, there is often dramatic disagreement about what what that language means. Even at the moment of enactment, there is profound uh, uncertainty and lack of knowledge about how Uh, a particular clause might be applied in the future. And though that gap between the text of the constitution that we have and the particular concrete controversies that uh, come before any court has to be bridged, not just by some sort of mechanical application of law, it has to be bridged by making what are inevitably normative judgments about the value of equality, the value of liberty, the value of bodily autonomy from state control that are not entirely resolved by the Constitution. So I am absolutely not trying to um, uh, justify anything, uh, especially I, not the uh, reversal of Roe v. Wade, which is something that I think is no, I, I wrong. I was just suggesting that. I was certainly yeah. trying to... Yeah. I. Okay. I was just trying to isolate the idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, and I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm making. My here. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Now, so, and, uh, this is actually really helpful because you're, what you're doing is you're, you're pushing me to clarify things, which is great. Okay.
1: Now I want you to uh, talk about something else that's not in your book, which is this wonderful piece you wrote for political Politico, uh, Politico a, a week or two ago, um, about Justice Alito. Tell us about that piece. It's about the anger that Alito is uh, um, imposing on the country, I would say, and why you wrote the piece against the backdrop of this book. Can you do that?
0: Yeah, yeah, so so the, the piece points out that both in the draft Dobbs opinion and across a range of earlier, uh, both opinions and public, Uh, uh, occasions, Justice Alito has expressed himself in ways that that signal um, a a profound emotional commitment um, that um, shapes his jurisprudence. Uh, and I, I point out language in the in the draft Dobbs opinion. Um, there's there's the repeated use of the word abortionists, for example. There's language that is, um, I, I think it's fair to say, contemptuous of the judges who wrote the original Roe opinion. I think if you look back at his earlier uh, decisions, there's language that, which is um, hyperbolic uh, with respect to, or or language which is um hyperbolic may not be the right word uh, language which expresses um alarm in uh, 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 an, again in an emotional register about the plight or the perceived plight of people who oppose gay marriage people who are religious who might have to accommodate people who are lgbtq or accommodate women who are seeking uh, contraception and there is n- no equivalent language. there is no equivalent attention devoted to the plight of people who are for example, victims of police violence, uh, 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 women who are, for example, seeking um, reproductive choice because they are uh, they've been victimized by sexual violence or by incest. There is that is an, uh, uh, there is no even handedness in the nature of the uh, emotional concern that uh, Justice Alito uh, demonstrates with respects to different kinds of litigants. It's asymmetrical rather than being symmetrical. And I, I think one way of reading that pattern that is evident in the text of his opinions is in light of a particular... Uh, political identity that is salient today, and that has been salient, I think, for the last 30 or 40 years. The idea of an embattled white Christian minority that sees its traditional way of life uh, being, or what it views as its traditional way of life, being threatened by first, the process of desegregation, and then second, by cultural and then legal changes such as the right to abortion, the right to gay marriage or same-sex marriage uh, that have emerged over the last uh, 20 to 30 years. Um, Go ahead. Sorry.
1: I was going to say, wouldn't the average citizen have uh, a pretty good gripe to be able to say, well, why is that person on the court? How can personality fuel or drive decisions. It's clear that his personality, his anger is driving the decision. It's not based on law. It's completely opposite to what judges are supposed to do. Wouldn't the average citizen have a pretty good c- complaint?
0: So so I I think that I think that the the complaint that I would lodge or the or the or the, the point that the, the critique that I would push is is not not to draw a distinction between uh, decisions that are made on the basis of law and decisions that are made on the basis of values, but to say that this is the wrong or or a bad set of values, and and I fundamentally disagree with those values, and I think that they're the wrong values to have in a judge. Why do I draw the distinction between those two things? Um, I, I take the the decision in Brown v. Board of Education, right? A decision that I think most of us think is clearly the right decision, and clearly a just decision. I don't think it's at all clear as a matter of the text of the Equal Protection Clause and the immediate history of school segregation, not just across much of the North, but even in places that were controlled by the federal government, such as the District of Columbia, right, which had segregated schools around the time that the 14th Amendment was enacted. I don't think it's at all clear that Brown, you can get to Brown by just some mechanical application of the law. I think you have to have a view about, well, why is segregation wrong? Why is Jim Crow wrong? How does it conflict with the vision of equal protection that is is embodied and aspired to by the constitution? That's a normative question. So it's not I, I don't I, I'm not resisting the idea and I don't want to resist the idea that you can somehow um, that, that 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 decisions particularly uh, particularly unconstitutional questions can be reached in, in some sort of mechanical way without appealing to values. Right. So it's not that Justice Alito is I, I disagree with Justice Alito because he's appealing to values. I just I think that those are values that are inconsistent with the uh, vision of the best version of our, our constitutional scheme, uh, a vision of the constitutional scheme that is not um, lopsided when it comes to taking account of the interests of people who differ by race or gender or vulnerability. I think that our constitution is, is best read as being inclusive, not being exclusive. Um, And I would critique Justice Solito for uh, the uh, content of uh, of the values that he brings to the table. I wouldn't critique him for the fact that he brings values to the table. I think that that's the wrong critique, at least in our uh, constitutional system.
1: All right. I think I've pressed you as far as I can press you. I want to turn now to something altogether different, uh, which is, uh, you as a, uh, as a writer, as I mentioned before we actually started recording, you're a very fine writer. You really are. You're very lucid. You're dealing with stuff that is difficult to write about because anytime anyone tries to describe what happened in a particular decision upon the Supreme court, they get lost in the details. You're a very fine writer. And I want to know how did you become such a good writer? Who did you read? Where did you learn to do it? You didn't expect that
0: question, did you? <laughs> I did not expect that question. That's a terrific question. And um, you know, I, I will say that as a, as a parent of a preteen who is starting to have to write, it's something that I um, think about a lot. Um, you know, here, here's what I would say. I, I, you know, I, um, I, I had two careers before becoming a legal academic. And I think that both of them uh, were careers that, that suited me to writing, um, not just, it, writing with, with a sensitivity to who the audience is. I, I spent some time as a journalist uh, working for a newspaper called, the, which has now uh, uh, disappeared, called the Hong Kong Standard, as well as writing for college papers and writing for, for you know, whatever occasional thing came around. Uh, and I was a litigator, and, and, and I think both the, the journalist and the litigator, I, and I mostly wrote briefs, I was, a, I, I was not a person who was in court regularly, I was mostly doing motion practice and a power practice. I think both of those jobs are about communicating, and both of those jobs um, encourage a kind of ruthlessness about ego. Right. Your job as a journalist, your job as a litigator, is not is not to promote yourself, not to show off how well you can write. It's to communicate ideas, and it's to get across something to your um, to your audience. And when I now write, I I really the one thing I try and think really hard about is who am I writing for, Mm -hmm. and and I'll, I'll say that the the um, the book, *The Collapse of Constitutional Remedies*, is is in an Oxford University Press series where there's a very tight word limit. You're not allowed to go over forty thousand words. You're not allowed to have a lot of footnotes, and the editor's very, very clear. You got to you got to write this for a, a general audience, and and so I when I write for Politico, when I write for a general audience in the form of the book, um. I pay a lot of attention to thinking about how is somebody who is not a lawyer going to read this? What, you know, is this, is this sentence immediately opaque? Is it, is, it, is it transparent to the non-lawyer? And I think that that, that um, thinking about the audience rather than thinking about yourself is really a discipline I learned as a lawyer and as a journalist. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wonder, I don't, you know, I, I wish I could say I was better read than I am, and your, your question very fairly asked about what I, you know, about influences. But I think it's about practice. And I think it's about practicing, writing. I, I'm sure I don't do this always, but practicing writing in a way where you're, what you're thinking about is not yourself. You're thinking about your audience. And you're thinking about how do I speak to this audience?
1: Well, I've always thought that the, um... World of legal writing, at least as Lisa says, it taught in law schools, gets it all wrong because they miss the most important point, which is what you've just described: know your audience. You're writing for an audience of one or three or seven or nine, whatever the number is, but you know who your audience is, and you know, for instance, they read thousands of briefs. So you have to find some way to give them what they want, and then get on with it. So, but I. I I do want to know, and I don't want to obviously press you too much here, but who do you read that you not are influenced by, but admire?
0: I, you know, I, I will say that, um, you know, at the moment, uh, it's this is a what are you reading now kind of question. Okay. Uh, if we can take it as that, is that all right? Sure, sure. So, so, um, what I am reading now is I am working my way through the the. The a magnificent body of work by John Carré, mm-hmm. which I am embarrassed that I didn't have never read before. And um, what strikes me about those books is um, those books are only, I mean, they are espionage novels, but they are, you know, espionage novels in the same way that, you um, Hard, the uh, the that, that, that um, Bleak House, for example, by Charles Dickens, is a legal novel. Mm-hmm. It, they are novels about human psychology, and they're novels about the 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 movements of the human heart, and the way that those movements are often imperfectly understood or viewed by the people whose hearts are at stake, and the piercing thing that he does and that i admire greatly is to is to capture in in words the way in which we are we go through the world only half understanding not just what's happening around us right and that's the espionage bit it's the it's the it's the who you know what what exactly is the plot that i'm i i'm i'm embedded in But what Le does consistently is to show that his characters don't just misunderstand the world. They misunderstand themselves and they don't fully grasp their own drives and neuroses and worries and anxieties. And, And that is just a marvelous thing to be able to do, to show, to sort of be inside somebody and to show their mind working in ways where you can see the gap between what the person understands and what's actually going on. Um, I think that that's, that's a tremendous thing. Um, I, and and it's, you know, I wonder whether it's the kind of thing that had I read the books in my 20s, I would have totally missed. And whether it's because I'm reading them now and I'm in my 40s, whether my own experience of the world and my own sense of sometimes acting on the, on the basis of things that I don't fully understand until after the fact. I think maybe it's that it's that experience that age brings that allows me to appreciate um, the Lucario books. But I, um, I, it's a cliched recommendation, but uh, they're they're a marvel to read. They're they're absolutely wonderful, particularly the um, the so-called tri- the Carla trilogy, which starts with Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy.
1: But I just started rereading that. Uh... Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that in our country, he's not recognized as the writer that he is, that is a really fine writer, not just a genre writer. Um, in England, they, they tend to think of him as transcending the genre, genre, yeah. and uh, I think that's justified. Uh, a really fine writer, uh, he always strikes me in a way like uh, Raymond Chandler, um, mm-hmm. really, they, they have the nuts and bolts of writing down perfectly. And then they infuse it with character analysis. I mean, in a way, George Smiley, um, the star of, those, uh, of that trilogy you just mentioned, is one of the greatest characters in uh, English literature. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and and I, I, I certainly think that, I, this is to your point, that you know, if you're a young lawyer, reading um, widely not just reading in law or reading in political science or reading in economics is incredibly valuable because what you get, if you have, have picked up and are familiar with, or at least in passing, some of the great literature that's available now, assuming you don't speak other languages, just available in English, is, is so many different ways of expressing ideas, so many different ways of using the language to be clear and to communicate mm-hmm. and that, that any great writer. And I, I think Le Carre, as you said, is, is one of the greats, certainly of novelists, is great because they communicate and your job as a lawyer is to communicate and to move people. And as you said, to move the judge who has three minutes to flick through your brief out of a stack of 100. And if you can grab that judge's attention, if you can communicate them, even while being clear, even while sticking to the conventions of of, of legal writing, then you're doing a really good job, right? And I think that you know, if you're the more the more well read you are, the more likely you are to be able to do that.
1: Oh, well, I agree. And um, just one person I want to recommend—I uh, don't know how much you've read of Charles Freed, but he's another really gifted writer with a deep, deep. Um, store of learning that he draws on, and he hasn't gotten, he's, I think, in his mid-80s now, but he still has not gotten as much attention as he should get. and he's an interesting fellow because he's changed his point of view when it comes to some of the most important legal issues of our time. All right, well, that's enough for me, and you've been terrific, he's. you've really been terrific telling us uh, what you think about the historical um, problems that the courts face and what's going on with the court today. Uh, I didn't ask you questions about your own time clerking the Supreme Court, which I would have been really interested to know about. But uh, that's for another day. So again, thank you very much for for doing this. And I'm going to conclude the recording, though I want to talk to you for a minute afterwards. So uh, Aziz, thanks again for doing this.
0: Bill, thank you very, very much for having me. I really appreciate the chance to to have this rich um, and terrific conversation.